Let me invite your attention to uh, John chapter 12. I appreciate your worship of the Lord today, the enthusiasm, the heart, the volume, the participation. In fact, I'm convinced that uh, you all will make it to heaven if you don't run right past it. I uh, hold in my hands here one of the most lethal weapons in a Baptist church. In fact, once some of you find out what it is, you may be um, tempted to pay me not to use it, but it is a church directory. (laughs) And this one is um, from 2009, the most recent version. And I have uh, looked through it, and I see Bud Kenny, and I'm wondering what he was thinking that day. Very little. That's pretty typical. And I can't believe, um, now there's A.B. Sawyer. I I can't comment on that. I don't want to say anything. There are collars in here, and I thought these went out in the 70s, but these would double as wings for a 747 Boeing commercial jet. And then there are a number of hairstyles in here that I would uh, label not hair do's, but hair don'ts. Well, you know, it's not like I didn't expect that. I just got to say, Bob Mueller, you're one to talk, eh? Remember, I told you all ago I loved that. Pictures that are taken of us are pictures that we want, uh, in which we want to create an image and project to the world. They are in many ways a projection of ourselves, at least at that moment in time. Much the same happens with people's mental concept of Jesus. There are some pictures of Jesus then that are not very legitimate. There are some that have a view of Jesus that reminds me of a hippie social worker someone that's really mild and very casual about things and primarily concerned about the horizontal issues in life. Then there, for those that are especially politically committed, some of them, not all, but some see Jesus as a political activist or revolutionary. And there are some that have defined Christ that way without any reference to the other significant elements of Christ's life. Then there are some that are actually legitimate. There are some that think of Jesus as a baby. They don't think much beyond that, though. There are some that think of Jesus as a teacher, but not much beyond that. And some that think of Jesus as a healer and someone that did good, and not much beyond that. Well, those last three are entirely accurate, but the problem with them is that they are incomplete. There are some Greeks that came to the Passover in Jerusalem while Jesus was there in the Gospel of John, which is organized around three Passovers, in fact. And when they came, they came to Philip, a Greek name for a Jewish man. They're Greeks, and I imagine they felt that they might find some sympathy there with him. And they asked to see Jesus. Well, Philip wasn't apparently too sure if Jesus wanted to see them, so he went to Andrew, who every time he's mentioned in the New Testament is bringing someone to Jesus. And so Andrew and Philip bring the Greeks to Jesus, and Jesus paints a picture of himself. 
Now, it's not complete. There are other things to know about Jesus, but Jesus focuses their attention upon his cross. And when Jesus wanted to think, wanted the Greeks to think of him, he did not want them to miss his cross. And he doesn't want us to miss it either. In fact, John chapter 12, verse 20 down to 33 is about the cross. In verse number 23, he speaks of the hour, and he does so a couple of times in this passage. Uh, through John, that's a reference to the hour of his death, and sometimes his death and resurrection. And then in verse 24, he talks about a grain of seed falling to the ground and dying. And then he goes on to talk in um, verse number 27 about how his soul is troubled. Well, it's troubled at the prospect of the cross. And, and then... He goes on in verse uh, number 31, talks about judgment on the world, where in that week, God would unload his judgment against the world. And then he goes on to talk about in verse 32, if I'm lifted up from the earth. Well, he's used that language in John 3 and in John 8 for his crucifixion. And verse 33 explains he's referring to the manner of his death. And so here in this text, when the Greeks come to Jesus, which are a preview of the Gentiles that would come from around the world and still do, and thousands upon thousands will come to him today, perhaps you in this service even, when they do come to him seeking him, he points them to his cross. And he gives a marvelous promise in verse 32. And I, if I be lifted up, from the earth, will draw all, literally, to myself. Jesus is multifaceted. It would be very legitimate to talk about his existence before the creation of the world. It would be very appropriate to talk about his appearances, mysterious appearances in the Old Testament. It would be very appropriate to talk about his birth and his life and ministry, his resurrection, his second coming. But all of these hinge upon his cross. Without his cross, none of it matters or makes sense. We must understand Jesus in cruciform. The entire life and ministry, every event, every epic, every episode of Jesus Christ is shaped like a cross. In his heart, in his mind, in his intentions. To know Jesus and to see him as he is, is to see him as crucified. Well, why in the world would we ever want to see Jesus then as crucified? Well, our text gives us a number of reasons why we want to consider Jesus, conceive of Jesus, think of Jesus, calculate Jesus as crucified. The first one happens to be this. Jesus' death magnifies his rule. Jesus' death indeed magnifies his rule. There have been many rulers throughout the years who have ruled for less than worthy motives. Some of them rule for self-gratification. Imelda Marcus came to power in the Philippines with her husband and used the Philippine treasury to accumulate massive wealth and purchased while there, more than 3,000 pairs of shoes. She gratified herself. And when she lost a lot of her wealth, 
And when her wealth had declined precipitously after she and her husband were run out of office, she was still worth five billion American dollars. Some go to power, to rulership for gratification. Some for their own personal security. There are some leaders that become very paranoid. Saddam Hussein took the lives of 300,000 of his people. And other rulers have done the same. In fact, D.A. Carson in his book on the death of Jesus Christ said, the kings and rulers and presidents of this fallen world order exercise their authority out of a deep sense of self-promotion. Out of a deep self of wanting to be number one. Out of a deep sense of entitlement. By contrast, Jesus exercises his authority in such a way as to seek the good of his subjects and that takes him to the cross. When Jesus gets power, he goes to Calvary, is what he does. And in verse number, in verse number 23, he, he says much the same. The hour has come that the, now watch this, Son of Man should be glorified. The Son of Man is a complex Old Testament term coming from Daniel 7, where the Son of Man comes and eliminates all rival kingdoms. Here Jesus says, I am that Son of Man. I'm going to eliminate all rival kingdoms, but I'm going to do it gloriously first by dying on the cross, is what he's saying here. So he has the power and the authority to eliminate all rivals, but he is the kind of king that first dies for their sins, and we glory in his name because of it. That is why he is distinct, and that's why the world can't get, uh, can't get past that. We sing songs then of Jesus and his death, and there's no other person about whom so many songs have been written. We write books, and no one's had this many books written on uh, his name and character and nature. Uh, we uh, exalt him. We, in fact, take his cross and make jewelry out of it. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Jesus Christ died on the cross 2,000 years ago, and we still can't get past it. He is glorified because of his death for sinners. And so his death magnifies his rule. He is the king of love and the prince of peace. And he does that through death. Well, that's not all. Jesus' death also multiplies his influence. Now he uses a very common illustration here that would make sense to, to most anyone. Verse 24. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Well, then he applies it to himself. He who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for, etern for eternal life. Then he applies it to others. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Well, Jesus uses a very common illustration that most everyone understands. A wheat seed has a husk around it, and in order to produce a crop of wheat, these seeds have got to fall to the ground, enter the dirt, and the husk has got to die. Because within the husk is the seed where life can be germinated and a crop can be produced. And Jesus says, that's the way it is with me. If I'm going to produce fruit around the world, a harvest around the world, I have first got to die. And then he applies it to his followers, is what he does. Ladies and gentlemen, in his death, Jesus produces a harvest. 
Jesus expands and multiplies his influence by his death. Let me ask you, is there anyone that has been more fruitful than Jesus Christ? Today, his name is named, and there are two billion who claim him as Lord and Savior. More than any other in in the history of the world. And that's not over the last two millenniums. That's only today on this day. That doesn't include all those that have gone on before and are now resting in the presence of the Lord. Jesus Christ has inspired more good works than anyone that's ever come along. He is the one in whose name the first public hospitals were established caring for all people despite their ability to pay. He is the one that inspired nursing through Florence Nightingale who named his name. He is the one responsible for sending education and medical care into the third world through Christian missionaries. He is the one who's responsible for great medical advances, the discovery and treatment of bacteria, discovery of vaccines, antiseptic surgery, gynecology. In his name, 122 out of the first 123 universities were established in the United States. In his name. He is responsible then through missionaries for the creation of many languages. He is is responsible for the mass printing of books. Gutenberg did it in the name of Christ. Folks, this world's gotten a lot of mileage out of the death of Jesus. And they're going to get more. There is no other world religion leader or founder of a religion who can claim this kind of dynamic, energetic, creative fruit in life. Jesus and Jesus alone. His death multiplies his influence. Then his death glorifies his obedience. One philosopher explained that you can explain all of life by one thing, and that is everyone is attempting to escape pain. It may be mild pain, like having to wash the dishes, therefore you create a dishwasher. It may be severe pain, so you see a doctor. It may be relationship pain. It may be emotional pain. In other words, just about every action in life can be uh, explained at its base. The common denominator of all actions happens to be an attempt to escape pain. I don't know if that's true for everything, but it is obviously true for many things. Verse number 25. He who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Then verse 27. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Oh no, but for this purpose I came. Father, glorify your name. Crucifixion was common in Jesus' day. It was invented by the Persians. It was used extensively by the Romans for capital punishment. It was done public. They had public executions in order to threaten and warn potential potential criminals of their fate. And crucifixion was a horrible way to die. I'm not sure there was a worse way. It was usually preceded by a beating by the Romans, which would turn the victims back into ribbons, one doctor said, into ribbons of quivering flesh. And then, exhausted, dehydrated, beaten and bruised, the victim was marched up with a crossbeam on his back and nailed with Roman spikes in the hands and feet. And then hung up. And their diaphragm was constricted in such a way that they had to push up on the nails in their feet to fill their lungs with air. 
and debris. Well, you can only stand that for so long and then you have to rest as much as you possibly can. It was a horrible way to die. No one wants to die this way. No one wants to be executed in the first place, especially by this means. And Jesus is facing the specter and the possibility of crucifixion. And then he admits in verse 27, My soul then is troubled. I'm going through a a quaking of my soul facing the cross. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Oh no, but for this purpose, I came to this hour, so as I'm facing the cross, I will not ask the Father, let me escape this pain, as most of the world would do. I don't ask to be released from this pain. Instead, I say, Father, glorify your name. That's what he said. Ladies and gentlemen, the prospect of bleeding and dying on a cross could not move Jesus into disobedience to the will of God. Jesus did not disobey the will of God at a single point. He is the sinless and perfect Son of God. He never had to pray, forgive us our debts, or forgive me my debts. Uh, debts. He never said, oops, or I'm sorry, I, I, I didn't mean to do that. Because he did not need to. Every act was righteous. Every thought was pure. Every feeling was holy. Jesus was completely sinless in and out. And it is that Savior who invites you to come to him today. And so we'll give you the opportunity at the end of the sermon to turn to Jesus Christ, who is the sinless Son of God. He never violated the will of God. And even death could not keep him from obedience to the Father's will, because it was the Father's will. That reminds me of the story of the little boy who had a friend that needed some blood, had a blood type years ago, and it was something of an emergency. So they, the doctor approached the little boy and said, would you give her some blood? And he thought about it, and with a trembling lip, he said yes. And so they took blood from him to transfer to this young friend, because they did have the same blood type. And after taking it, the little boy looked at the doctor and he said, well, when do I die? He thought giving blood meant his death and still gave of himself. Friend, Jesus was certain that giving himself meant death and even that could not turn him away from the will of God. He persevered all the way. So his death glorifies his purity. It exposes great purity in the heart and life of Christ. Well, there's a, there's a um, fourth thing that Jesus' death does, and that is Jesus' death verifies his claim. All world religion leaders make big, boastful claims about themselves. They claim to be commissioned by God. Muhammad in a private cave in the Middle East in 623. Joseph Smith in a private bedroom in upstate New York in uh, 1823. And then Sung Myung Moon on a, in a prayer meeting in a Korean hillside. All of them claim a private commissioning from God. Look what happened with Jesus in verse 28 and 30. Jesus said, Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven saying, I've both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. And others said, an angel has spoken. Well, there were three reactions here. Some got it. Some said it thundered, and there's always a crowd like that. And then some said, well, it was just an angel that spoke. 
The point I want to make here is, is that the Father approved of Jesus Christ publicly, not in private. And when the Father gets something started, like a new world religion, He does not do so in a private cave in the Middle East. He does not do that in a private bedroom in upstate New York. He does not do that in a private prayer meeting in Korea. He does it publicly in the presence of many witnesses, is what He does. Jesus is the only legitimate world religion leader. All of the others are excluded. None of them enjoy, enjoy the commissioning and the anointing of God. Christ is the only way to God, heaven, forgiveness, and grace. He is the only truth. His death verifies it. It verifies his claims. But then Jesus' death also satisfies the law. God is a king. He has a court system. And he has a law and he has sentences to go with those laws. It's what he has. We have violated the law and so he has sentenced us to death. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. And so the king from his court has sentenced us to death. We are to pay for that. So the king created a law. He created a court system. And he created sentences. And look what Jesus said about that in verse number 31. Now is the judgment of this world. In his death was the judgment of the world. Now watch this. The king created laws and a court system and sentences to go with violations of those laws. We violated the law. He sentenced us to death, but he sent his son to pay the penalty. So the law was his creation, the sentences were his creation, and he served the sentence for us. In the cross of Jesus Christ, God poured out his judgment upon the world and allowed Jesus to be the substitute as what took place. Darius Salter said that God paid for his own wrath in the person of Jesus Christ. He suffered his own wrath at Calvary because he's not only just, he's not only pure, he's not only holy, but he is a great God of love. And he loves to love sinners to salvation. And so he creates the law, he creates the sentences, then he serves the sentence himself in the person of his son. And so on the cross of Jesus Christ, we have the judgment of the world. Now it just amazes me how intoxicated some people are with notions of their own virtue. I'll say to you, if the world becomes less and less Christian, it will become more and more self-righteous. It stuns me. I know of uh, one woman who got so angry with her family two weeks before high school graduation that she left and didn't finish high school graduation and did not graduate despite having stellar grades. Became so infuriated and was insistent that she was going to do things her way instead of their way. It's how angry she became. And then she took up with a man without the benefit of marriage, had a child out of wedlock, left him, took up with another man, and in the middle of that marriage, had a relationship with another, and told me one day, I know I'm a good person. Well, what possible evidence do you have of that? <laughs> no. There is none righteous, no, not one. David Nasser said, this is not in the Bible. God helps those who help themselves. That's not in the Bible, that God helps those who help themselves. 
what is all through the Bible is God helps those who can't help themselves. You can't help yourself before God. I can't help myself before God. Before God, we are wicked. Before God, we appear as snakes in front of your car. That's how vulnerable we are before God. And so God sends a Savior to pay the penalty so we don't look like snakes in front of the car, but sons and daughters of the King. And therefore, He puts the brakes on judgment, redeems us, puts us in, and carries us to glory. That is what God does. His law demands punishment and judgment, yet Jesus Christ served that at the cross. Well, there's another thing that Jesus' death does. It also exercises the devil. Exorcises, not exorcises. It exorcises the devil. It casts him out. Now, you've got to understand something about the devil. The Bible refers to him as the ruler of the world in John 16, 11, and 14, 30. He is the God of this age, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. He has an administration around the globe, principalities and powers and forces of wickedness, Ephesians 6, 12. In fact, John said in 1 John 5, 19, the whole world lies under the sway of the devil. Somehow or another, sometime either after Adam and Eve fell into sin or maybe sometime before, Satan became the prince of the world and governed it. He owned it. When Jesus Christ bled and died on the cross, look what happened in verse 31. Now is the judgment of the world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. In other words, Satan was the crown prince, the royal owner of the world. But when Jesus Christ died on the cross, Jesus paid the court of heaven to purchase the world. The court recognized it and ran Satan off the throne of this world. Now Christ is waiting to take possession of it. Like some of you did after signing your mortgage, in about a month you took possession of your home. Jesus is still waiting to take possession of it, but this is what has happened in his cross. I have a cousin in another state who is attempting to take possession of some land that belonged to our family years ago that we lost in the Depression. It's got enormous... Uh, there, there, well, many, many acres and enormous pecan groves on it. Enormous pecan groves that are very productive. But the owner of the land is absent and somewhat irresponsible, and so he doesn't pay the taxes on the land every year. But my cousin does. He goes to the courthouse and silently pays the taxes on the land. The land was um, obtained by this family in some ways that our family objects to. Let me just put it that way. But every year, he pays the taxes on the land, and at a certain point, he can take possession of it. In fact, he may have already done that. Beloved, that's what Jesus has done with this cross. Jesus paid the court of heaven and repurchased the world. He said in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, The Son of Man did not come to serve, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He's paid the ransom price to take back the earth. And the good news is, before I put a period at the end of this sentence, he may come back to reclaim his own. He owns it, and it belongs to him. And so he is in the process of evicting evil forces from the world. Jesus exercises the devil. But then, finally, Jesus' death universalizes his pull, and his draw. 
John chapter 12, verse 32. He says, and I, if I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all to myself. And he goes on to say, he said this, signifying by what death he would die. Something remarkable happened to the globe when Jesus died. In fact, something remarkable happened when he was born. John 1, 9 says that coming into the world, he gives light to every man. Light covered up the globe at the birth of Jesus. When the Spirit came at Pentecost, he began to convict the entire world. So light and conviction cover up the globe. When Jesus Christ died upon the cross, he began a process of drawing all to himself. Now, that does not mean that all are going to be saved. It does not mean that at all. But it does mean the spiritual resources necessary for people to be saved now cover up the, glo- the globe and the world is now free to repent and believe the gospel because of the birth, the spirit, and the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. If I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me, Jesus said. I will draw all men to me. You say, but I've embarrassed myself and my family with immorality. And I hear King David saying, all. I've committed murder and taken a man's life. And I hear Moses saying, all. I have uh, been guilty of drunkenness. And I hear Noah saying, all. I've been guilty of telling lies about my family. And I hear Abraham saying, all. I've been guilty of idolatry and encouraging others for idolatry. And I hear Aaron saying, all. I've had marriage trouble. And I hear Hosea saying, all. I've sold my body. And I hear Rahab saying, all. I've had multiple husbands. I'm with one now that is not my husband. And I hear the Samaritan woman saying, all. I've been guilty of pride and self-righteousness. And I hear Nicodemus saying, what? All. I have been guilty of white-collar crime. And I hear Zacchaeus saying, you can do better than that. I have been guilty of doubt. And I've heard John the Baptist saying, and I uh, hear someone saying, I've been guilty of denying Christ even in public after swearing allegiance to him. And I hear Peter saying, all. I have opposed Christ's church and conspired against it. And the Apostle Paul says, all. May I say to you, if you're still breathing, you're savable, forgivable, and you can be a recipient of the grace of God if you'll repent and believe the gospel. Because if he's lifted up, he draws all men to himself. Is what he does. And if you'll come, Christ will cancel your sin. Now there's a price that Jesus has paid. And he said in verse 24 and 25, we've got to die. We've got to die to ourselves. Somebody asked George Mueller, the great great Baptist orphanage leader in England, what is the secret of your success? And he said, there was a day when I died. I died to George Mueller, his opinions, his preferences, his tastes, his will. I died to the world, its approval, its censure, its disapproval. I died to the approval or blame even of my brethren, my friends, and my family. If you're going to be saved and receive the grace of God today, die. You've got to die in the same way. In other words, you've got to be a corpse. Let me ask you something. How would a corpse this morning think of its virtue and righteousness? Would a corpse stand up and proclaim, well, of course I deserve to get into heaven because I've been good. I know I'm a good person. Would a corpse do that? No, not at all. A corpse would make no claim to virtue or self-righteousness. Not at all. Become a corpse in that way. Stop believing that you're virtuous and stop believing that you are clean before God. 
Proverbs 30 says there's a generation that's right in its own eyes, but still is not washed from its filthiness. Stop believing that you're good and accepted. Stop believing that you're okay with God. That's the beginning. Now, the moment you accept that you're a corpse before God, then there is hope. Let me ask you something. What would a corpse do with resisting the Lord and His Spirit as He draws you today? Would a corpse resist? Absolutely not. Become a corpse in that way. As the Spirit of God draws you to come to Jesus Christ, cooperate with the Spirit. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray in just a moment. And we're going to let you call on the Lord right where you're seated. And then we're going to sing a song. And when we sing that song, I want to ask you to step out from where you are and meet one of our staff members here in one of these aisles and tell them, I'm coming to Christ today. Or whatever it is that you happen to need. There's some of you that today need to follow the Lord in baptism. You've turned to the Lord, but you don't have your baptism after your salvation. It's time for you to come. There's some of you that need to come and become part of Beach Haven Baptist Church. You know the Lord, and it's time to come. Well, you don't have a permanent minister of music. Well, let me ask you something. Do you think God knows who that's going to be? I believe He does. Well, if He's leading you to come today, then just come. He already knows who it's going to be. Well, I may not like Him. It's entirely beside the point. (laughs) If you know Jesus, you are dead. You don't have opinions. You don't have views. You don't have preferences. You don't have sentiments. All you have is surrender and obedience to Him. You come. You come. It's time to come. Some, God's calling you to ministry or missionary service. We want you to come. Some of you have other needs. The altar's open. But whatever you do, make sure you deal appropriately with the cross of Jesus Christ and yield and surrender to Him. Father, we thank you for the good news of Jesus. We bless you for your word. And thank you that you have made the cross so prominent. We pray that we become more prominent still. Let friends today rush to the Lord Jesus and claim Him as Lord and Savior by faith. Help them to repent and repudiate anything keeping them from trusting Christ today. Thank you that the Holy Spirit draws. Thank you that the Spirit convicts. Thank you that the cross pulls. And thank you that the birth of Jesus gives light. And We pray, O oh God, that you would do that marvelous work that Jesus may be honored as He deserves. And as you're talking to God, call on Him. If you believe that you're guilty before God, if you believe Jesus took your place, if you trust that he rose from the dead, if you're not ashamed and not a coward, call on him right where you are. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Would you quickly and quietly stand with me, please? I'm going to finish our prayer. We're going to ask you to come as we sing. Father, we want Jesus to have everything he's calling for now. Would you do all that you want to do in these moments that your son may be satisfied with our response today? In Jesus' name, amen. You come. Come quickly. Follow the Lord.